Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sikkim speaks to Edward Kisvetter about the future of taxation in South Africa. Hello and welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Sekum and today we're talking to the Commissioner of the South African Revenue Service, Edward Kisvetter. Now, from 2004 to 2009, Edward served as founding group executive of the Large Business Center and High Net Worth Unit at SARS, SARS Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Commissioner as well. He then rejoined SARS as Commissioner in 2019, having held various external executive roles in the private sector in the decade in between. His stint as CEO of Alexander Forbes was a big one. There he managed a turnaround which saw the company relist on the JSC and so no stranger to managing turnarounds with SARS having emerged from the shadows of state capture allegations. What lies ahead for this institution? Before we find out, please note that this is a pre-recorded session. February is a busy month for the Commissioner. In fact, tomorrow he reports to Parliament before Finance Minister Inokorangwana presents his budget towards the end of the month. But this doesn't take away from the independent insights this series brings you that hopefully sees you form your own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. So keep the conversation going. The social media campaign is hashtag Think Big PSG. Commissioner, thanks so much for making the time and for joining us today. So I caught up with Michael Jordan in our last episode, and he was saying that to get South Africa out of its rut, we've got to stop pointing fingers at government, that private sector can and needs to enter and start finding solutions so that South Africans can access alternatives. Fair enough. Private sector can and possibly should come to the party. So why are we paying taxes? Well, I would like to first underline that we should stop fighting with each other and start fighting for each other. And I see too little of that in our bigger society. Why pay taxes? Well, you know very, very clearly that often the bad news is amplified and it ought to be. And then some people believe that that justifies them to not pay taxes. But I remind people firstly that any contribution towards furthering a lack of law and order we then become part of the problem and not the solution. But more importantly, who are we hurting when we withhold our taxes? Well, let me tell you what I think. Because in my mind, when I do my work and I'm frustrated, I place in my mind the face of an old granny who without the contribution every month would be destitute. A young mother who was able to take care of her kids because of the support. I don't think that it is sustainable that we have 26 million people or 29 million people on social grants, but I think it is a safety net that really keeps so many people from absolute destitution if not from demise. And so for me, I'd like to remind South Africans, we pay taxes for those people who will hurt most. The rich people, wealthy people, they will insure themselves, they'll buy themselves out of it. But we have to remind ourselves that the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable among us 
are most dependent on the work we do. Look, I think you'd find few dispute the merit of paying taxes, Edward, if they didn't feel like they were pouring money into leaking buckets. But at this rate, it almost seems like a double taxation. And I use the term loosely here, paying a government who isn't providing the services it's supposed to, and then having to fork out more to private sector to fill the gaps. You see the merit in that argument, surely. Of course, there's merit in that argument. And that's why we have a democracy where ultimately we vote for the government we want. Every fundamental change in South Africa has not come about because of governance. It has come about because every citizen understands their agency, understands the activist role. So my message to those, again, who believe that withholding taxes is the best response would simply aggravate the problem. I would say, let's get off our seats and let's be activists to work towards creating the society. And if this government does not deliver, they should not be in power. They should not be the governing party. I believe that it is our democratic context and principles and not governments that will ultimately deliver us the South Africa that we want. Your family bride conversations, Edward, must be interesting when people know they've got the SARS commissioner in front of them. <laughs> I, I say this wearing two hats. Firstly, my hat as a passionate South, Africa, South African who have decided not to stand on the sideline and criticize, but to roll up my sleeve and make a difference. But I also speak that as as a member of the government, I'm employed by the South African government, but I work for South Africans. And so I speak without fear and favor. And when I see wrong in government, I'm not going to hold back simply because it's politically correct. Are you at least being won over on the idea that if consumers are going to alleviate pressure off the grid by installing independent power solutions, for example, then there should be a few tax incentives or rebates in place, if not a complete zero rating on products that offer alternative energy solutions. I mean, Twitter's been ablaze with suggestions that everything from inverters to generators to parts and components of solar technologies to candles should be tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I am completely aligned with the principle that government and, and specifically National Treasury and the Minister of Finance, because tax policy is not the domain of SARS, we administer tax policy. But here's my view, both as the commissioner, as well as a South African. The last amendment in respect of renewable energy was made in 2016, when companies were allowed for some level of photovoltaic investment to accelerate the depreciation over one year, which effectively means a 28% discount on your investment. Now, I believe that when that was introduced, we would not have known or be as consciously aware of the extent to which the energy crisis would have regressed and what other instruments we need to respond to it. And so I believe and have engaged already my colleagues in Treasury to say, we should be reviewing what additional provisions we can make to provide some relief and some burden, some uh, incentive for people to make 
and investment in their own become a little bit more self-sufficient. But also, let me remind you and others that to use tax as a way to correct a particular behavior in society is often not the most effective. Yeah. Okay. Good to know, though, that you're at least inputting on potential options worth exploring here. And I think we need to underline the fact that, uh, you know, there's a difference between uh, what falls within Treasury's ambit. It entails policymaking and there are clear lines. National Treasury in charge of tax policy, SARS responsible for uh, collection, right? Are you worried that if there's no change and there continues to be no accountability for the way money is spent and a continuous downward spiral of service delivery while revenue collection improves, Edward, that we have a tax revolt loading? I think the majority of South Africans are completely disenchanted, quite rightly so, with the current state of affairs, the lack of delivery, the slow progress we've made, and particularly most in your face today is the inordinate disruption to social and economic activity brought by no change. So to deny that would be burying our head in the sand. But I still believe that most South Africans, even as disenchanted they are, or if we say this in good Afrikaans, the hutful factor, people are tired of excuses. Mm -hmm. They are tired of a lack of delivery and they have every right to be so. But I still believe most South Africans are moderate and will think long and hard before they join a tax revolt. I'm not talking of marching, uh, joining a service delivery march. I think South Africans in their heart understands that by withholding their taxes, that they would be hurting the very people yeah. that we should be protecting. Edward, you remind me of a meme doing the rounds. Uh, Prince Charles asking President Ramaphosa, so how do you keep getting what you want from your South African taxpayers? And the president responds, well, Charles, South Africans are really content. They take their frustrations to social media, online petitions, uh, drinking, partying, brying, but no action when they actually have all the power to force out and bring real change. So we've got to start seeing South Africans holding government accountable more so, and you alluded to it, right, by initiating some kind of change within government structures. You've got a direct line to Treasury. How often do you air your frustration? Do you spell out the fact that you're cut for? Because when citizens don't get bang for their back, it makes your job trying to up compliance and breed um, a willing taxpayer all the more difficult. I think Treasury is tired of hearing me uh, because I talk to them regularly. Uh, I am very forthright in my conversation and feedback to my minister. Uh, when I'm part of the various conversations in government, whether it's the Energy Crisis Committee, whether it is the economic cluster discussions, um, I don't hold back. I give them frank feedback uh, about where I think we are failing and letting ourselves down. And I underscore the fact that we have not done enough to mm -hmm. earn the level of credibility that South Africans are entitled to and should be uh, um, experiencing uh, from a government who quite, frank, uh, quite rightly has been placed into power to address our challenges of poverty, of inequality, of 
poor education, of slow or no economic growth. No matter what policies we formulate, no matter how we grandize the, the noble uh, victory over apartheid um, and, and, and express our uh, gratitude for the liberation from oppression, those things were all important milestones. Right now, it is service delivery. It is how do we change positively the material conditions for South Africans. And if we can't do that, we deserve every criticism. How are you rating political will to do just that? My personal observation and having a fireside, a ringside seat often to this is, I think it is less a issue of political will and genuinely more an issue of competence. I think that, let me give you my experience as a CEO of a significant institution in government, my frustrations. Having been a CEO in, in, a, in a listed company and an unlisted company, things move a lot faster. If you need things to happen, there's a strong bias for action. There isn't the slow bureaucracy. Government, unfortunately, and no, regardless of the intent of the PFMA or certain regulations, the actual impact of that is that it has created inefficient procurement processes, inefficient pro recruitment practices. It delays a process that should take a day or two into literally months because there's so many signatories, so many desks that it must go through. It is, having been on both sides, I can tell you one of my biggest frustrations is that when you have to make a decision that just makes so much sense, you can't make it because you are constrained by a framework that have been designed to regulate, not to liberate. Yeah. That has been designed to constrain, not to free up resources. And my, my, the, the absolute displeasure that I have with that is that none of the PFMA, none of the regulations we have have prevented wholesale corruption between the public sector and private sector during COVID. Yeah. Billions of rand was, was stolen, literally stolen by political elites working and colluding with private sector to defraud the fiscus, to defraud the, we cannot ever sit back and say that's fine because we're fighting a noble cause. And yet, Edward, SARS is emerging, right, from the aftermath of state capture allegations. It's finding its footing once again. Where are you then in this rebuild process? And did you underestimate what it would take to actually turn things around when you initially came on board? Uh, I know I'm asking you multiple questions here, but in getting to where you want it to be, are all elements of corruption weeded out or do you still feel that there are forces at play, you know, that residue of state capture that's still working to undermine your efforts? You know, we have a long way to go, Alicia. We have made measurable progress. I'm very encouraged by the progress we've made. I think the public experiences, the change in SARS, we still drop the ball occasionally and taxpayers ought to hold us to account when we do. Um, we should not behind, uh, hide behind any of our inefficiencies. 
you see both in the improvement in revenue collection, the improvement in compliance trends, the improvement in our trade facilitation, all of them on a positive upward trajectory, uh, 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 showing encouraging signs of growth. But if you compare the improvement we've experienced against the inordinate challenge we face, we have a long way to go. And some of the constraints are obviously, um, I, I mentioned to you the constraints one has as a CEO within the public sector as opposed to the private sector. Uh, but in addition to that, um, we are very slowly reclaiming our position as an employer of choice. So attracting top skills, I cannot compete with the financial sector and the insurance sector at the same level of remuneration and share allocations and bonus allocations. I have to offer a different value proposition, a commitment to service, a commitment to a higher purpose. And it therefore makes the attraction of the kind of skills we need. My, the skills we need at SARS is no different than the skills that Michael Yodine would need in building a bank or building a, self, a, a mobile uh, communications company. Yet I cannot compete at the same, same level that they do. So it's making it harder for us to attract the kind of skills. But you know what? We work at this. We have seen um, an improvement. We have seen the tide turning. And slowly we will claw our way back. Um, we have made in the last year probably brought on an additional 400 almost 500 additional skills in the technical area. We've just employed the first 50 of a cohort of 250 new breed service consultants. Um, so we're doing multiple uh, interventions to improve our attractiveness in order to improve our efficacy as a revenue administration. Think about the level of data science, technology, and uh, artificial intelligence we need uh, and I can share with you some of the examples of the impact that that work has. No different to any private sector organization, notwithstanding the challenges we face, we see that as opportunities. So, so how long in a nutshell, before we see SARS where you'd like it to be? I'll be retired long before we get to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've, got, we've got a long road ahead of us, right? But. You read a headline, Edward, like SARS is stepping up its game in 2023. Yes. And you can almost hear South Africans unanimously sigh. Yeah, if only every other government department could do the same, right? Why is it proving to be so hard to get things working this way across the board? And I know you mentioned slow to action factors, right? But you seem to have somewhat of a playbook at this stage for other departments. AI, as you highlight, is a big part of what's making things work. How can you apply what you're doing across the board so that all government functions are more efficient? There's a couple of observations I'd like to share with you, and also always very careful that we don't declare victory too soon. But some of the observations that I, I have encountered over the last four years of being in this role is that our orientation to learn and to learn from each other is not where it needs to be. And so each of us, whether it's a DG or a CEO of a government institution, 
we tend to have a silo mindset. Mm-hmm. We tend to focus on our own agenda rather than saying, what can we learn from each other? How do we work together? The minute you have more than one ministry working together, three DGs, you have more opportunity for each defending their own turf than saying, let's lift our game and serve the higher cause and improve the whole of government. So I think that's, it's a mindset issue that we sold to silo-driven. Um, let me give you an example, a very practical example. We were in Rabat in Morocco earlier this month uh, to answer to FATF. And so there are a number of institutions that contribute towards the risk of daylisting. And so if each institution think about only their little piece of the puzzle, and no one zooms out and think of South Africa as a system, we will end up on the gray list. Yeah. And there's too little of us zooming out and taking a whole of government approach. Um, also, the organization of government is too functional, right? We don't think of building a better community or better system. We have a minister for roads. We have a minister for water. We have a minister for housing. We don't have a minister for building a better community that is socially cohesive, that includes better education facilities, recreational cities. So we're not building communities. We are in our functional silos looking at the narrow interest of a single department. And so the way government is organized in itself is not organized to win at the extent that we need to win. Yeah. So in that context, Edward, I mean, you might be surpassing collection targets. Your midterm budget showed, or midterm budget showed an unexpected, what, 83 billion rand in tax, tax revenue, and that's quite a windfall. But, you know, threat of a potential tax revolt aside, you're battling slow to no growth, um, unemployment at record highs, cost of living pressures, seeing consumers having to tighten their purse strings, and an immigration rate that's picking up pace as well, and that all working to shrink an already small tax base. So how are you planning to sustain the momentum? Well, first of all, I think the immigration issue is overstated. Last year, just more than 6,000 people left. Um, And in fact, at the top end of the earnings uh, bracket, it's a lot lower than the 6,000. So I think we need to understand better what is the actual impact, the quantifiable impact of immigration. I think the soft impact is high. Reputation is not good. Every South African that leaves because they have lost confidence in the system is bad for us. But I think the overall fiscal impact is not what some media sensationalizes to be. Not to be dismissed or trivialized, but I think let's just put it where it belongs. Secondly, I think for in South Africa, the bad news is the good news. We have so much corruption. We have so much debt. We have so many levels of non-compliance that if we just focus on addressing the opportunity landscape, we have so many low-hanging fruits to improve revenue collection and, of course, be buoyed by the occasional uh, uplift in, in, in the mining or the financial sector. But those things will, over time, even out. The real benefit for us is the significant growth we have seen 
in what we call the compliance dividend, meaning the additional revenue we collect, notwithstanding economic conditions, comes just from resiliency, from focused effort by thousands of individuals in SARS to make sure that every cent that needs to be collected is collected, that every instance of non-compliance is responded to, uh, whilst we're setting ourselves the extremely high uh, standard to provide world-class service. So I think maybe what we need to do more and, and, and take South Africa into some level of confidence is exactly how the workings of SARS at a case level produces the additional revenue. So the bad news is we have low levels of compliance in relative terms. The good news is it provides us low hanging fruit for a compliance dividend. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the bugbear, right? You've got um, a large part of the citizenry saying it's just easier, it seems, for SARS to hit the high net worth individuals. And because they can leave and trigger a capital flight, extend that purview to those sitting abroad, you know, those in the process of emigrating, is it easier to clamp down on business uh, transactions as well and go for the long, uh, the low hanging fruit is that a large part of your strategy would you say no so we have a very objective risk-driven approach to selecting cases increasingly data-driven and increasingly drawing off machine learning algorithms so i will not target alicia for any particular reason because the last time she passed me in a shopping center she didn't smile at me um, or I don't like the fact that my neighbor is now driving a nice car, so now I'm going to audit him. We just don't work like that. In fact, if we had to work like that, I'd be very clear that those are dismissible offenses. So we, we spend an inordinate amount of time risk profiling. Let me give you an example. Last year, we collected just over 4.3 million VAT returns. It is humanly impossible to process every one of them with human effort. And so through the risk selection and risk profiling artificial intelligence that we have built, we're able to, from that, select only 10% of, of cases, i.e. just over 450,000 uh, uh, instances, that is selected for further audit, of that, what effectively that means is that 92 out of every 100 that returns, we don't even touch because it's not alerted for us. Eight out of every 10 is alerted for us. Of those that are alerted for us, 71%, we will review a quick review desktop and it is generally processed within the turnaround time. The 25 to 30% requires additional pouring of, of, of effort, asking for additional information. But just doing that work, last year, we prevented the outflow of 42 billion impermissible fraudulent uh, refund claims. So, so it, is, it is work that is calibrated. It is not the only subjectivity that you could find there is our choice 
that a particular phenomena has a high risk for us. But once we've made that choice in the construction of our compliance program, our work is pretty much based on evidence-based risk alerts. Yeah, and you're using AI and taxpayer profiling. You're employing international collaboration when it comes to South African taxpayers' obligations. Uh, you know, after the negative branding, uh, Edward, of the so-called rogue unit, how far is SARS in the process of re-establishing uh, a specialist unit or units, or are you just sticking to working and cooperating with the Hawks and the NPA for now? We have within SARS our civil audit capability, then we have our criminal audit capability, and then we have created a third capability which is looking at syndicated crime, where there is generally a network of criminal activities that involves multiple people, multiple networks, both onshore and offshore. Um, the recent, the recent uh, uh, busting of a large um, tobacco syndicate, for example, would be a good example of the work of this unit. Um, and they look at both tax and customs in an integrated manner. So those are the three areas of work, investigative work. But let me give you another example. Last year, we selected just over 3.1 million taxpayers that by our assessment of their profile, we consider to be relatively low risk. They are standard income earners. Using only third-party data and using only uh, uh, algorithms, we were able for 92% of them to give a seamless experience, which means they did nothing. They received a message from us that said, your assessment is done. This is the outcome. You don't have to do anything. It's the money will be in your bank. If you're selected for an audit, this is the process you have to follow. So 92% of that universe that we chose received that experience. The others, obviously, they received additional attention, either a very simple light touch verification, and if they, we were alerted to a more complicated risk or a complex matter, it would then go into the audit stream. Okay, so that working in the background, budget coming up towards the end of this month, we know from the midterm budget that revenue collection targets uh, were raised, 1.68 trillion rand is the target you're, uh, you're now looking at, how high is the risk of ESCOM and its impact on growth of derailing you and hitting what are pretty steep targets? Let me just say that there are no easy pickings for us in that regard. It is absolutely a fact that the load shedding has had a huge impact on economic activities mm -hmm. and, and you know, it has crippled many companies. We saw the recent articles about small business not being able to cope, um, large companies giving profit announcements. So we expect that it will have a material impact on our ability to collect revenue. Secondly, we also find that during times of crisis, people are more likely to be ultra-conservative and where there is an opportunity, the temptation to withhold paying taxes. And so our debt book grows disproportionately and then it requires additional effort. I mean, last year we had to uh, follow, resolve 2.2 million cases 
And every one of them requires a phone call, a follow-up, a message, a letter in order to resolve that. And that work resulted in us bringing in almost 60 billion rand. So yeah. it, it definitely is harder. But as I said to you early on, we will leave no stone unturned. And our staff also knows that we don't do this out of desperation and therefore become heavy-handed and bullish taxpayers. Each of our staff are held to the highest level of professionalism and are called to account. Um, just this week, uh, we dismissed an employee for colluding uh, in an unprofessional way with taxpayers and considering yeah. pressing criminal charges. So we do not tolerate unprofessional or, or collusive behavior amongst our own staff. Um, but to your earlier point, of course, it's going to be harder, uh, but we will continue um, to do everything we can. And the reason we do that, Alicia, is we understand that every additional rand we collect is another rand that the Minister of Finance does not have to go and borrow for an expensive market and thereby mortgaging the future for our kids by having an unsustainable growth in debt and high debt service costs. Okay, so we've got budget coming up at the end of this month, Edward. Bottom line, the focus should be on how we get growth going, because that's the only thing that's going to widen the tax base sustainably, right? And I know you're not in charge of policy, but a viewer question that came through, do you have any ideas on how tax policy can better support industrial development in South Africa? I mean, which instruments are appropriate for that, as opposed to bringing in a wealth tax to cover unemployment grants? Well, see, there's no tax. I mean, so the, the, the both ministers of finance, by the way, have been very clear that directionally, the aim is not to raise taxes. In fact, it's to approach the OECD norm of lowering our tax for companies. And we've demonstrated that with a very significant decision by the minister in the last uh, financial year. Second thing, is that, of course, there's people who have bandied around with a wealth tax, but right now we are still of the view that the amount of compliance dividend reduces the pressure or the need for any other uh, um, uh, looking at the rates. Now, no government can completely yeah. uh, dismiss the idea that in the future there may be uh, the pressure for various pressures that government has on its expenditure uh, to raise taxes. But right now, I think our collective mindset is look rather at improving our administrative competence and not increase the burden on taxpayers, including wealthy people. If I have a conviction that if we ensure that every high wealth person in South Africa pays at the level that they ought to be paying, that there is no need for a knee-jerk reaction about wealth taxes either. Thanks for your time today, Edward. Edward Kisbetter is Commissioner at the South African Revenue Service. And to our audience, thank you for watching. Remember that this webinar will be available via podcast, so do look out for that as well as our next speaker in the Think Big series.